Welcome to A Regenerative Future. I'm your host, Matt Powers. Thank you for listening and watching. This is a show where we talk about the regenerative possibilities of partnering with nature to make the world a better place and make a living and live ethically here on Earth. I'm so grateful to be here to share with you this amazing talk. This is from our future 2021. Our future 2022 is this January. It's a free seven-day conference. Elaine Ingham is going to be speaking there again. This is last year. She'll be speaking with us again this year. You're not going to want to miss it. Check this out. If you haven't already seen it, if you've already seen it, you're probably going to want to watch it again. Elaine is one of my soil mentors, one of my longtime soil mentors and friends. So uh, I always love talking with her. I always love introducing her and all of her stuff. It gets me pumped. And I, I think it gets you guys excited too because uh, I, I see the view count on her videos. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here. Without any further ado, here's Dr. Elaine Ingham. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, glad to see that you're all here. It's really great to see new faces and um, be able to uh, give this talk about the soil food web. No matter how many times I give this talk, I love to always be talking about these microorganisms and uh, how important they are, what they do in the soil for you, and the fact that we do not need toxic chemicals um, you being used in order to grow our food plants. So I hope you enjoy learning all about life in the soil today. Okay, I like to show this slide as the first slide because it allows me to talk a little bit about um, the food web and what it looks like. Uh, if you look at where the different organisms are in this picture, you'll see that they're connected by arrows. And so the arrows tell you where the energy is flowing to as it moves through all of this nice set of microorganisms in the soil. Sometimes the carbon and the energy will have uh, lots of organisms that it will go through before it gets um, to the upper trophic levels. And of course, we are up here at the higher end, the highest trophic levels. And so we're looking at an energy flow system. We're looking at a carbon flow system. That's what the arrows tell you about. But those arrows don't tell you about the rest of the nutrients and how the nutrients cycle over and over and again back through some of these organisms hundreds of thousands of times until they're eventually lost as gases or they're leached out of the soil eventually. And it's always amazing to try to think about how many times these nutrients in the soil have actually been passed through one organism to another, to another, back into the soil, back into a soluble form, back into a uh, exchangeable form, and going on and on and on. Now, I also like to choose to start out here because you can see this agricultural field behind me, and you can see that it's been plowed. Every time you till the soil, every time you do a disturbance, you have killed at least 50% of the organisms present in that soil. So you can see if you go out and till once, well, you've lost half your organisms. If you till for a second time, you've lost another 50% uh, of the organisms and another 50%. Think about when people till in order to deal with weeds. 
we may till up to 14 times during a growing season in order to constantly try to get rid of those weeds, get rid of those weeds. Well, how does Mother Nature do it? She doesn't do tillage like this, certainly not every couple weeks. There would be no trees on this planet if that's what nature did. So how can nature control for weeds without having to do this highly destructive management practice? And we're going to go into that today. When you look at that soil, you can see all the clods, see all those lumps and clumps and big, hard, rock-hard um, pieces of what should be soil. Those clods aren't soil. You don't have the organisms in those clods. You don't have the nutrients available. You're probably growing a whole lot of disease-causing organisms in those clods as well because the disease-causing organisms really like reduced oxygen conditions. As soon as oxygen starts dropping below six parts per million, your beneficials, most of the beneficials are aerobes. I mean, not all of them. It's not 100%, but 90%, 85% are going to be beneficials when you have aerobic conditions. As anaerobic conditions start to occur, you lose the aerobic organisms and the anaerobic organisms now can win. So where'd that compaction layer, where did those clods come from? They came from a compaction layer. When you don't protect the surface of your soil through the growing season, you're going to end up with those raindrops hitting the top of the soil and causing compaction at some depth, not right there at the top, but at some depth down into the soil. And you get enough rainfall. Well, this is Oregon. Do we get enough rainfall to compact the soil? Absolutely. So if you don't protect the surface of your soil, you're going to cause compaction. Water cannot move through compacted soil very rapidly at all. And so you have water logging in your soil. That's going to provide a lot of water. The organisms will grow very, very rapidly on any organic matter that might be in that soil. And that water is going to go anaerobic. And now you're growing diseases, you're growing weeds, all these things that we don't want to have happen in our soil. So we have to understand how all of these things happen. We've got to understand that almost everything in soil is mediated by biology. Every process, every change in the structure of the soil or the structure of your mineral nutrients or your organic material of the organisms themselves, it's all mediated by biology, not by inorganic chemical interactions. Absolutely not. We have to understand the biology in order to be able to understand what's going on in soil. So we're going to talk about the life in the soil today want to talk a little bit about my background. I have a Bachelor of Arts from St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. So double major in biology and chemistry at um, St. Olaf, and then did my Master of Science at Texas A&M in the world of marine microbiology. Moved then to Colorado State University to start my PhD in soil microbiology. 
And you would think that, you know, uh, the principles of microorganisms and what they do would be fairly same be between um, the marine environment or the freshwater environment and soil. But think again, because we've got all this dark colored material. We've got the sand, the silts, the clays, the rocks, the pebbles. We've got organic matter that as it decomposes, the microorganisms are building up more and more and more complex organic matter that takes a very long time to decompose unless you happen to be a fungus. So it's great fungal food. So the older a soil gets, and it's still got all these good organisms in it, the more likely you are to be growing perennial plants, old growth trees. So the um, succession from early successional stages after having catastrophic disturbances how does mother nature finally get us back to an old growth forest and we'll talk about all those steps and why it is you need to know the biology that occurs in each of those steps along the way so that you can set up the organisms in the soil that will be most likely to promote the growth of the plant that you want to be growing. What's your cash crop? Couldn't, can't we just keep growing our cash crop year after year after year after year in the same soil in the same place? Well, if you understand your biology, absolutely. If you can provide the organisms to your soil, you don't have to worry about you're running out of one particular nutrient or a few other nutrients. You don't have to worry about diseases and pests. You don't have to worry about putting on all those toxic chemicals. And even the inorganic fertilizers, those are toxic because every single inorganic fertilizer is a salt. And you're pulling water out of the bodies of your microorganisms when you put on an inorganic fertilizer. Just think of the uh, enormous amount of water rushing out of the bodies of all these organisms in order to try to solubilize that salt, balance those nutrients. And as a result, all your beneficial organisms are dying. Can't you hear their voices as they all die after you put on inorganic fertilizer? Well, how about lime? How about gypsum? Are those inorganic fertilizers? Yeah. And so when you add lime or gypsum to the soil, what are you doing? You're killing the very organisms that would build structure for you, that would deal with the calcium-magnesium ratio. Microorganisms in the soil need what your root system needs. So what are you killing indirectly when you kill the biology in the soil? You're killing your plants. You're making it impossible for that to be a productive system. So we need to understand all of this. I wanted to put on the screen here, uh, Soil Food Web Incorporated, that's my consulting company. And then there's Soil Food Web School, LLC, where we provide classes for people to learn about the foundation of life in the soil, how it works, the theory, how do you make compost? How do you make extra extracts and teas? And how do you document that you've got the organisms that you need? How do you know if something's missing in your soil? Where do you send that sample in to be assessed? Well, you can pretty easily learn 
how to do those things yourself or find somebody that the school has taught. Most of the time we can take a sample, look at it using the microscope and in 20 minutes, you've got your answer. Who's missing? Who do I have to put back? Does my compost have enough of these organisms? Does the extract I wanna put on, does it have the right biology or not? Why waste putting out water, dark colored water, if you don't have any of the organisms in it that are those things that do all the work for you? So please go take a look at our website, soilfoodweb.com. We've got some great animations that um, we've just had them. Um, we've just finished uh, the last couple. Um, so please go back and look at them. We go all over all of the major topics that I'm going to be touching on today. But I think you'll find that they're fun and interesting to watch. And you can always go back and watch them over and over and over again. So a healthy food web, what will it do for you? It will suppress disease. So we want to make certain that we're get the com getting the, com the competitors, the inhibitors, and the consumers of the diseases and the problem insects and problem organisms so that none of these problems will be present in your ecosystems. So we've got to get the right sets of species of bacteria and fungi and protozoa and nematodes and microarthropods and macroarthropods and earthworms and incotraeids and all these different sets of microorganisms present in your soil so that you will never have disease. You will never have a problem with those problem organisms because they will be outcompeted, inhibited, and consumed. So we want to make certain that all our surfaces, both below ground in the roots, as well as above ground, in the leaves, in the leaves, in the branches, in the flowers, and in the fruit or the seed. We want to make certain all of those surfaces are covered. So there is no way that a disease-causing spore can even make it to the tissue of your plant because they're going to be protected. Your tissues of your plant are going to be protected by the castle wall that the bacteria and fungi make around those root systems. There's no food left for those disease-causing organisms to be able to germinate and start to grow and cause problems. We also want to retain nutrients. We want to make certain that any soluble nutrient is pulled into a bacterium or a fungus and kept there kind of like the pantry in your kitchen. We want to keep those nutrients in a form that they will not leach. They will not be lost. That erosion does not occur. And so no runoff of water. We want all our water to infiltrate into the soil where it can be stored for summer, when your plant it gets a little dry up on the surfaces of the soil, so you want those root systems going down deep into the soil. Well, where's your water? Where does it infiltrate to? It could be down there at four feet, 10 feet, 25 feet, 50 feet. And so you want your roots to be able to grow down there and get that summer water so you don't have to irrigate in the late summer period. In certain parts of the United States, that is a huge reduction in the expense of growing plants. So 
you just have to have the right microorganisms present in order to do that nutrient retention. And most of those nutrients are going to be retained right around the roots of your plants. Now, how do you make those nutrients available to your plants? So point number three here, nutrients are made available at rates the plants require. It is the plant that is in control of this whole nutrient cycling system. So when plants first came into existence on this planet that had roots, those roots put out exudates, and they still do that to today's, um, to now. They're, they're just getting more finely tuned as time goes by, as um, the communication between the bacteria and the fungi and the root systems of your plants gets finer and finer tuned. So the plant checks its body and says, I need some boron today. So it's going to put out the exudates that grow those bacteria and fungi that make the enzymes that will solubilize boron out of the sand, out of the silt, out of the clay, out of the rocks, out of the pebbles, out of the boulders, out of the parent material, and pull those nutrients out and pull them inside the bacteria and fungi. Well, if there's some easier forms of nutrients that the uh, microorganisms could go after, which might be organic matter, every single cell in, organi in the organic matter has to have all the nutrients that your plant requires in order to grow. And so the bacteria and fungi just take the easy, low-hanging fruit and pull those nutrients out of the organic matter. They decompose that plant material so that it can get at the nutrients and then they store those nutrients in their bodies because that's what the plant told them to do with the type of exudate that the plant was producing. So now here are the bacteria and fungi going around their proper business of protecting the root system from the plant. And because those bacteria and fungi are growing up to really high levels, here come the protozoa. Here come the uh, bacterial feeding and the fungal feeding nematodes. Here comes the microarthropods. Here comes all the predators of the bacteria and fungi, and they start to eat the bacteria and fungi. But the nutrient level of every single nutrient is so much higher in the bacteria and in the fungi than in their predators. That if those poor little predators didn't do something about the excess of nutrients that were they were consuming when they eat those bacteria and they eat those fungi, those predators would die. So they got to poop out those excess nutrients. And so that's why a lot of people call this the poop loop. We remove those um, predators, release those soluble inorganic forms of nutrients so the plant can easily and simply take it up into the root system. Simple diffusion into that root system and all of the nutrients in all the proper balances are pulled into, the, um, into your plant. Okay, so what if you have more predators eating more bacteria and fungi than your plant needs those soluble inorganic nutrients? There's excess. What are you, what's going to happen? Are, are all those soluble inorganic nutrients going to leach out of your soil and destroy water quality down there by the stream or the lake or the river? No, won't ever happen. 
because a lot of the bacteria and fungi did not get eaten by those predators. And so those bacteria and fungi, they are rapidly growing just as fast as they can to hold all of those nutrients, keeping in the, them those nutri nutrients in their bodies. So trying to uh, hold on to everything. Well, don't bacteria and fungi leach? Aren't they going to be washed out of the water? No. If they're living, active organisms, and you know, it's like, who? What do we care about the dead ones? We want the living, active organisms that are performing functions for your plant, and they need those new nutrients. So of course, they're going to take them right back up again. They're getting exudates. They're getting all kinds of good foods, all that dead organic matter out there in the soil. So should we be purposely removing organic matter from the soil? Never, because that's the food that your microorganisms need in order to do all of these other functions. So decomposing toxins. If you ever put an inorganic fertilizer on your soil, if you ever used a pesticide, if you ever use something toxic, you've got to decompose those toxins. And it is the microorganisms that are going to do that job. There's some absolutely fascinating work being done by, micro, uh, by a mycorrhizal scientists like you know Paul Stamets or um, Peter McCoy, sorry. And so take a look at what they're finding. It's just amazing because there's the reme remediation experts of the world, the fungi. There are always some set of species of fungi that are going to take care of any toxic material that we can fathom. It may take a while to find those fungi, maybe even find some bacteria that will do that, but I'm not too worried. We can deal with every toxic compound. At least so far, there's always been somebody found that will be able to decompose them. But why do we produce those things in the first place? That's Isn't that kind of a, a conundrum? Uh, we don't need those toxins because remember, we suppress disease. We uh, are going to deal with weeds by making certain that we have the proper balance of bacteria and fungi along with their predators. So weeds will never be able to grow in any of our healthy agricultural fields. Well, how do you do that? Hold on, we'll get there. Building structure is a huge process that um, the microorganisms do for you. And um, bacteria, for example, they make glues to hold themselves onto the surface of, of the um, sands, the silts, the clays, the organic matter, any kind of material that's got a surface, like roots. They're going to glue themselves onto those surfaces so they don't wash away. So they're always right there to take the nutrients from the plant, the exudates, and start doing the job that Mother Nature told them to do. Fungi, they are long strands, and they wrap themselves around those microaggregates, pull them together, and leave really nice, wide-open hallways and passageways that will allow water and your roots to move ever deeper into the soil. So water infiltration, um, uh, the roots of your plants moving down deeper, breaking up all of the compaction that might have started here and there. But if you've got these good beneficial organisms in the soil, you're only going to hold the water 
in those pores and that prevents them from washing all the way out down into the rivers and lakes and streams. So we increase water holding capacity, we increase rooting depth, and we reduce water use. You don't have to irrigate, you don't have to be applying water, and yet you'll get higher yields typically. So five of the overarching principles and every single one of these benefits has to have biology to perform these functions for your plants to receive these benefits. So when we look at the soil food web, this is probably an easier way for most people to try to remember these things, is look at all of the organisms. We've got um, sunshine. Sunshine, of course, is uh, gonna be taken up by green plant material. Um, it then photosynthesizes. And that means it's gonna take one carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and pull it inside the plant and start adding the energy from sunlight to that carbon molecule. Well, it's gonna pull another uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and now taking the carbon from that second carbon dioxide, blowing off oxygen as a waste product. See, you plants don't need air, do they? They're getting rid of all that excess air. Oh, but they do need aerobic conditions. And why is that? Well, we'll get there, hold on. So the carbon dioxide, two carbon dioxides plus energy will be converted into sugars that hold that energy in the bond between the carbon-carbon bond. Now, if your plant needs three carbon sugars or four carbon sugars or 10 or 18, your plant will just keep adding more carbons on. So does your plant need carbohydrates? Does it need lipopolysaccharides? Does it need protein? Does it need, need a number of different kinds of amino acids? Yes, absolutely. But notice that all those other compounds have to have other nutrients. They cannot be made just by oxygen, hydrogen, and carbon. So where do those nutrients come from? your plant's only going to get two things from above ground. That's going to be sunlight energy and carbon dioxide. Where's it going to get all the other nutrients that, that that plant's going to need? Where does the nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium, iron, zinc, all those nutrients, where do they come from? Below ground. You have to have roots. You've got to have a way to get um, those um, nutrients that come from the soil combined with those sugars, which are the backbone for everything inside any of our growing plants, any of our animals, any of those human beings that we so love and cherish. So we'll start that process because your plant's gonna use those photosynthates, those sugars, basically, a little bit of protein, a little bit of carbohydrate perhaps, in making these different kinds of exudates coming out of the root, so organic matter, if you will. Remember that your plant will eventually uh, die at the end of the growing season. Some of the roots may slough during the middle of the year. Now, what happens to dead flowers? Yeah, they all come down here to the surface of the soil, and that organic matter can also be used by the bacteria and by the fungi in order so they can these organisms can start performing their function of holding nutrients of protecting the root systems so here we've got our bacteria and our fungi and 
when bacteria are decomposing organic matter, that organic matter has a typical carbon and nitrogen ratio of maybe 30 to 1 up to maybe 1,000 to 1. Well, the bacteria can't touch the really wide um, carbon, high carbon um, materials. It's going to go after the simpler sugars, the CDN ratios 30 to 1 to 60 to 1. And so when those bacteria that have a C to N ratio of five carbons for every one nitrogen, then you have to realize is those bacteria eat these foods that have a 30 to 1 ratio of carbon and nitrogen, there's too much carbon in here. So what's that poor little bacterium going to do to make certain that it, the food it's feeding on is going to be compatible with what the bacterium needs? Well, the bacterium is going to blow off those extra 25 carbons as CO2. So most of what a bacterium decomposes is going, the carbon anyway, is going to be blown off as carbon dioxide. Or if you're under anaerobic conditions, methane or other equally as noxious um, materials that we don't want to have anywhere near our highly productive grasses. So the bacterium, then CDN 5 to 1, is going to be really high in nitrogen. Well, it's also true for phosphorus and magnesium and calcium and all those other things as well. How about fungi? Well, fungi have, on average, and you have to realize I'm averaging here over the different parts of the fungal body, but the CDN ratio on a fungus is about 20 to 1. So when it approaches organic material, it's going to decompose that plant material and utilize 20 to 1. Well, that it's using more carbon than the bacteria did, but, well, there's still quite a discrepancy, especially when you think about the 1,000 to 1. So how does that fungus deal with that? It's going to take that excess carbon, and it lays down thick carbon layers on the inside of the hypha. It doesn't lay that layer down on the outside of the hypha. The diameter of the fungus doesn't uh, get wider and wider. But in a lot of fungi that you take pictures of, you'll be able to see those thicker and thicker and thicker cell walls that will prevent predators of the fungus from being able to suck out the internal contents of that fungus. So it's a protective mechanism. And so when fungi utilize organic material, it's only going to be blowing off 20% of the carbon as CO2 as compared to bacteria that typically they're blowing off 80% of what they're decomposing. That carbon is going to be blown off as CO2. So if you want to sequester carbon in your soil, who do you want to grow? Fungi or bacteria? Yeah. That's one reason why tilling your soil and slicing and dicing all these other organisms ends you up in a very bad place because all you've got left are bacteria. And that's not going to grow the best food. They're not going to give us all the diversity of nutrients that we need to have. So we have to start looking at that fungal to bacterial biomass ratio, and we'll get to that here not too, fun, not too long from now. And so now bacteria. Who eats bacteria? Just follow the arrows. There aren't too many 
arthropod, microarthropods that eat bacteria and only bacteria. The bacteria they eat are usually just because the bacteria get in the way of the other food that it's trying to eat. So follow the arrow to bacterial feeding nematodes and to bacterial feeding protozoa. There are some amoebae that will eat uh, fungi, but it's fairly rare to encounter them. So we don't generally include that arrow over here to the protozoa. These are typically bacterial feeders. Well, we've got a bad guy. Well, bad only because it indicates that oxygen is going south. It's getting too low to support the true beneficial organisms. So we want to see amoebae. We want to see flagellates. But we really don't want to see too many ciliates. You know, if you see one ciliate, okay, don't worry about it. But, you know, if you are seeing lots of ciliates, way more ciliates than the other kinds of protozoa, now you want to be worried because you're growing pathogens probably instead of good guys. So this trophic level then, eat the bacteria and fungi, release soluble nutrients so your plant can take them up. These guys, of course, have to have predators too, because what if you get too many of these guys? What if massive numbers of microarthropods and uh, nematodes, good guy nematodes, and protozoa are eating all your bacteria and all of your fungi, and all of a sudden you don't have anybody left in the soil? Because uh, when you run out of fungi and bacteria, then what are these guys going to do? Well, they go someplace else, or they go dormant, or they die. So we've got to have somebody that's going to control their or these the numbers of these organisms, and that's the higher level predators in the system. Well, then you get macroarthropods, you get the big predatory nematodes. Uh, doesn't somebody have to keep watch on these guys? Well, yeah, you're right, they they do. So the next level, trophic level. Well, you know who eats these guys, and then who eats those guys? And yeah, it's human beings up here at the top. And our job is really to maintain this food web and make certain that it is functioning correctly so that we can enjoy all the benefits of having a good healthy food web. So why be concerned with soil life? Well, because we don't need those inorganic fertilizers. We don't need those toxic chemicals and we're killing the biology when we use any of those things. So now we're going to be destroying our soil and turning it into dirt. We have to have the proper balance of nutrients for you and I to be healthy. For our, our, our plants, those things that we eat have to have the proper balance of, nutri of nutrients for the animals that we eat. Food tastes good when you have the nutrients properly balanced inside that food. When we're trying to grow plants in dirt where you don't have any way to access those nutrients, that food that you're eating from that dirt is not going to satisfy your hunger. And we're hungry all the time. We keep looking for more. Our bodies keep saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. And of course, it can't because it doesn't contain all the nutrients that is required. So flavor also depends on the balance of all the nutrients. It, it tastes good. And so we eat it. And at the same time, we're getting all the nutrients that we need if it's got good flavor. So we've already answered the question, where do plants get their nutrients? Remember, it's from the soil. So if plants, growing plants, 
have to get their proper balance of nutrients from the soil, then where does human nutrition come from? Yep, from the soil. So what's the difference between dirt and soil? Well, dirt is just the mineral component, the textural information. If we kill all the organisms off, if we uh, don't have anything to decompose that organic matter, it'll typically blow away when the wind blows and not be incorporated into the soil. So if it's just dirt, it's very few bacteria and massive amounts of sand, silt, clay, rocks, pebbles, parent material. And you're really not going to be able to grow anything in here unless you do use the toxic chemicals. And that's where the green revolution has left us, trying to grow food in dirt. When what we need to do is recover that dirt, replenish it, rejuvenate it, whichever term you want to use, we need to get those other components. So mineral component, yep, that's absolutely present in the soil, but you have to add organic matter and you have to add aerobic organisms. It is the organisms that do the work of building structure, of protecting your root systems, of cycling nutrients from the mineral component and the organic matter. So your plant can get the nutrients that it requires in the form that it requires, all of which is balanced. So when we look at soil, there is no soil on this planet that lacks the nutrients to grow plants. If you're dealing with dirt, uh, you do not have the nutrients needed to grow your plants. And we're going to have some really sick, unhealthy, unhappy animals and human beings and plants. So looking at uh, what is the nutrient content when we look at you know, what's the mineral, what's the nutrients in the soil. This is work by Sparks back in 2003, where he went all over and um, did lots and lots and lots of samples, looking at the nutrition um, inside in that plant material, just converting all of those nutrients into total pools. So he could get an idea of how much nutrient was actually present in the soil. So when you go down, I only listed about 20 of the um, essential nutrients in plants, but I think you're going to get the idea. You can find the table that he put together um, in his books and uh, look at all the other nutrients I, I didn't put on here because it's a lot. So take a look at um, calcium here. How many of you feel like you have to put lime on in order to deal with um, the fact that your soil gets very acidic or very, um, you know, too much of uh, one particular thing. So calcium is way too low. Look at how much calcium is actually present in your soil. So how could anybody tell you that your soil is lacking calcium? Uh, it's because they forgot to measure. They forgot to take this level of calcium into account because it's in the total pool it doesn't count because it's not in that plant available soluble pool they just ignore it well if you have the right biology this calcium is easily available to your plant 
So you've got to get the organisms back into the soil. If you ever want to solve that calcium-magnesium ratio problem, you've got to get these nutrients back into the soil. Let's go down here. Here's nitrogen, 2,000 parts per million nitrogen present in soil. There is no crop that needs this high a concentration of nitrogen. Again, not paying any attention to the total nitrogen content of your soil because it's right now not plant available. Well, get your bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, earthworms, all those guys, get them working. And you're going to have more than enough nitrogen to grow any crop that you want to grow. When you think about uh, how much of these nutrients are actually used on an annual basis, think about the fact that it's only 7% of the nitrogen that's in your sand silt or clay that will be taken up and utilized if there's nothing else in your soil, if you have the organisms. Well, you know, when you look at any crop and you put organic matter, Okay, a lot of that nitrogen is going to come from that organic matter. Maybe you've got nitrogen-fixing plants. So there's another source of where though that plant material, when it dies, is going to release that nitrogen and build this pool for you. So you don't have to rely on the sand, silt, and clay alone for the source of nutrients. You can rely on organic matter. Let's get organic matter. Well, how much organic matter should you be putting into your soil. I, it always just astonishes me when somebody sends in a soil chemistry test and it comes back with, you've got 5% organic matter. Oh no, oh my gosh, that's bad. You've got to get rid of that excess um, organic matter. That's, that's going to cause bad things for your root systems. What? Uh, that's absolute nonsense. Where did they come up with that? Oh, well, wait a minute. What if your soil's compacted and you've got lots of organic matter in there? Okay, now you are in trouble. Because if you are anaerobic, those disease-causing organisms are going to be using that organic matter. They're going to be decomposing that. And now they have a foothold in that area around your root system, perhaps. That's going to kill your plants. But it's because the condition is anaerobic. So when we're looking at how do we get the right microorganisms growing in our soil, we have to build structure. We've got to let that oxygen, not just water and roots moving down into the soil. We've got to have air passageways and hallways to keep the oxygen moving down into your soil so it stays aerobic. And the anaerobic organisms, the disease-causing organisms, can't grow. They will be outcompeted. They will be consumed. They'll be inhibited. All of those things we talked about before. So going on, um, looking here at um, um, an example of the kinds of things I've been talking about here. So here we're looking at um, a core from that we took out of a soil that was most was highly organic, almost a hundred percent organic matter. And so the grass seed was uh, planted in this area. So this is after we've grown everything. 
but the ryegrass was seeded in on the 15th of July when it was already getting kind of on the dry side in that particular summer. We had another plot right next to this that had conventionally grown ryegrass, same seed source, everything like that. Um, and that um, the plot next door uh, was already going brown, um, was a lot of the uh, seeds never germinated, uh, lots of weed problems in the chemical system, not in the biological system, because we're getting all the nutrients that our plant requires going into that soil. So planted, starting to germinate, starting to grow up. So here we are almost three and a half months later. Uh, we mowed, you know, we mowed several times through the summer. So right before we harvested this grass, pulled it out and, and took this core, um, we mowed the grass, there you can see it at the top, three days ago, this was mowed to a half an inch tall. Well, this is way beyond half an inch tall. So in three days, look at how much that grass grew because it had the nutrients, all that nutrient cycling happening, all the stored water in that soil, not a problem. So we came in on the 6th of November, pounded a PVC pipe about 10 centimeters in diameter into the ground down to four and a half feet, had to take a big piece of equipment and pull that um, PVC pipe with the core inside, um, back up, we then back up to the surface of the of the, the ground. We then cut that PVC pipe off, pulled those edges apart, rinsed this root system, and you can see how much uh, of the volume of that PVC pipe was occupied by roots. It was all organic matter, and just a fantastic growth um, through that growing season. These root systems are four and a half feet down to the ground. So here's Hendrikas, he's about six feet tall. And so holding this just above his waist, four and a half feet in less than four months. Now, if you start growing grass like this, you don't have to water it in the late summer period. It stays green, except in the most drought conditions you've ever seen. No weeds, no diseases, healthy green grass did never have to water it. So if you get this biology back into the soil, think of the amount of money you can save. You don't have to put on inorganic fertilizers. You don't have to use pesticides. You can save all your time that you used to have to take to put that material out there. It's always driven me crazy. You know, you go out and put on an inorganic fertilizer. So now you're going to have to go mow that grass more because you put out that inorganic fertilizer. And because that plant is growing too fast, because you're forcing that growth using that inorganic fertilizer, here comes the diseases, here comes the pests and start attacking. And now you've got to work real hard to get rid of the pests and the diseases. And because you've been pushing these toxic chemicals, the only organism left in your soil are bacteria, which set the stage for weeds. And so now you're going to have to put out herbicides to deal with, is this not just an exercise in insanity? Why do we keep putting out more? I do kind of like to make a joke, you know, you um, 
uh, go out and you see the problem. So you've got to go get some um, uh, one of these chemicals. So you're going to go put some more on and you uh, then have to go put some more on and more and different kinds of things. And so isn't that the definition of a moron? That you keep putting these materials out expecting that you're going to get different results. So we've got to stop that. How do you stop this process of killing your soil and making your soil convert into dirt? How do you go the other way? Well, we've got to get the biology back into the system. So in this next session, I want to um, look at uh, what these different organism groups look like. Because that's what we want to help you do, is be able to identify each of the groups of microorganisms. And we want you to be able to tell the good guys from the bad guys. I mean, sometimes we can't tell uh, particularly bad guys uh, specifically. Like we can't really differentiate salmonella from other short fat rod shaped bacteria. Uh, but we can be looking for those indicator organisms that tell us that the conditions are such that if you've got Salmonella or Shigella or Pasteurella or E. coli or any one of those human pathogens, they're going to be growing because you don't have enough oxygen for the good guys to win. The competition is on the side of the bad guys and it's working against the good guys. So how do you fix that? You better get more biology back into the soil so it will rebuild that structure. Make sure there are, food, there are foods for those organisms. So we're going to base our assessment on morphology. And because we can see that these organisms are present in your soil, then we can start talking about function. Is there enough function? So we're looking at this particular slide. Uh, there are bacteria, so I'm going to tell you what's present in here. Now you're going to have to find them and count them. So there are bacteria. There are aggregates built by the bacteria. There's some macro aggregates here built by bacteria first and then by the fungi. There are roots. Are those roots he healthy? Are they happy? Or do we have something that indicates there's a problem here? There are ciliates. Oh, I've already given away the, the story here, haven't I? Yeah, there's a ciliate in this picture. Therefore, are these healthy systems? Is this a healthy soil? See, we're interested in right now. I'm not interested in a year ago. I'm not interested in 10 years ago. I want to know what's going on right now in my soil and what do I have to fix right now and how am I going to fix it? So when you look at this picture, you can see the bacteria. They're a little bit out of focus, but you can count them. And so you can start figuring out, well, this is a 1 to 10 dilution, 1 to 10 dilution. And so multiply anything you count in here by a factor of 10. Except let's look at this aggregate. This is a micro aggregate. You can see lots of little bacteria growing on the surfaces. Some of them are little cocci. There's a few little rods. In here, there's more cocci, but mostly this is being held together by the glues that the bacteria make. And we've got 
pretty much just one species of bacterium growing in here. That's not good. We need diversity. If we don't have enough diversity, we're not going to be able to protect our root system through the whole entire growing season because as temperature and moisture change, as that seasonal cycle happens, different bacteria and different fungi have to be here to do all the jobs that the bacteria and fungi are supposed to do. So I'd be worried already just looking at this bacterial part of the system. Here's a flagellate cyst. So my flagellates, which are good guys, have decided to go to sleep. They wouldn't do that if this was a good, healthy soil. So again, I'm worried because all of my good guys seem to be not present. So here's my root. A root should be uniform diameter all the way along. It's not till you get to the tip that it starts to narrow and comes to a rounded point. We can see a lot of humic acid here and more humic acid. There's a little bit of fulvic. It's a honey color instead. And you can see the light reddish mix of humics and fulvics. Again, here we are back to the uh, humics. Really good fungal food. But um, it might be that this is left over from years previous. Hasn't gotten decomposed quite yet. But... It's telling us something that happened in the past, not something that's happening right now. And I don't know how many of you, as I, as I was uh, going along with my little arrow here, um, pointing to this, and I'm going, yes, uniform diameter all the way along. But that's not uniform diameter. That's a pretty big divot in that poor little root. Something's come along and taken a bite out of him, and the disease-causing fungi are growing in that wound. This is not good. The plant, if this, your plant doesn't respond immediately, you're going to have a dead plant. So it, this is getting unhappier and unhappier and unhappier every time I open my mouth. And now here's the ciliate. You can see the little cilia that he uses to swim along, or in this case, he's actually walking along this route. Look at all the bacteria that he's eaten. So yes, he is eating bacteria. That's great. But he's indicating to us that the oxygen's not what it should be. And there are disease-causing fungi and bacteria most likely growing in this soil sample. What do we have to do to fix that? We've got to get the aerobic organisms back into the system. We've got to make certain that they build structure as rapidly as possible so that we don't have problems with dying plants. So how about these? You can see the nice strands here. They're uniform diameter. You can see they're really nice dark in color. Wide diameter. This has got to be a good guy fungus. Doug, uh, colored, wide diameter, growing through the soil. How about uh, yeah, uniform diameter all the way long? Well, when you look at this strand, doesn't look uniform diameter. So that's not a good fungus. Uh, you got to remember to focus. See where the edges of that hypha are nice and sharp and clear? That's the only place that's in focus. So you've got to be moving your fine focus. So you focus here and you decide, yes, this is the same unit. This is the same diameter. And yes, up here, it's the same, it's same, same, same. This is the same species of fungus as this. 
but this is probably a, a different individual. So you can see why you can't really count individuals of fungi because some of them are ginormous. They may be 20 miles in diameter in that fungal colony, one individual. Um, others, other times you've just got little its and bits, like there's a little piece over here in this corner, there's a little piece over here, there's another strand right there. Hmm, is that a good guy or a bad guy? Well, when we look at this clear colorless piece, look at how wide the diameter is. It's even wider than this. So this is probably a good guy. Yeah, the dark color here tells us instantaneously this is a good guy. But how about this, where we're looking all the way along the length of that hypha, just slightly out of focus. And when you focus on it, you can tell it's only about two micrometers in diameter. It's clear, it's colorless bad news. This is Pythium. Now, somebody could take this sample and plate it on a medium that selects for Pythium, and they could scare the living daylights out of you that you have a horrible pathogen, pathogen that's going to take over and kill all of your plants. So you better take a fungicide out there and you better wipe out that disease-causing fungus. Well, what does that um, fungicide wipe out long before this pythium, which has become resistant to most of our fungicides? <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? What happens to the good guys that would inhibit and compete with and prevent the growth of this disease-causing fungus if you just left it alone? But you see where people can scare you? They can make you so afraid that you're going to lose your whole crop. Why don't you wait until you start seeing disease symptoms before you make that decision? And we've got things like trichoderma, which is a parasite of other fungi. You've got a whole bunch of disease-causing fungi growing. Put the trichoderma in there and let the trichoderma wipe out all of that massive amount of disease-causing fungal hyphae. Now, two weeks after the trichoderma has done its job, and the trichoderma won't germinate that rapidly again until things get up to that massive uh, fungal um, uh, biomass condition, now your spores of the fungi that got eaten previously, because both the good and the bad got eaten, but when you're, all your plants are dying from some fungal disease, it's time to use um, something that will take out all of that disease-causing fungus. But it takes out the, bad, the good guys as well. So you put in foods to get those good guy fungi growing. And so they germinate, they start to grow. And it will take a while to get back to where you want to be, but it will get there. So fungi. Um, can you find some bacteria in here? Oh, yeah, all these little dots. How would you like to count those? Ah, uh, you know, measure length and width of the fungal hyphae. That's going to get us biovolume. You can see that there's less humic acids in this sample, a lot more light colored. This is humic acid on a mineral particle. So we teach you in our classes to be able to identify all these organisms and know what they are and whether they're good or whether they're going to harm. When we're looking at mycorrhizal colonization, all you have to do is wash your um, root off, 
put it on a slide under the microscope, and look for the autofluorescent arbuscules. This is where the exchange of nutrients coming in through the fungal hypha brings in nutrients that the plant wants, and the exchange then is for sugars, proteins, carbohydrates from the plant being exchanged for nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium, iron, zinc, all those nutrients that your plant requires. Oh, so yet another way to get those nutrients from your sand, silk, clay, rocks, pebbles, organic matter, put into your plant in a form that your plant can take up. And so you can determine what's the percentage of your root system that's colonized by the active stage of the mycorrhizal fungus. We know that we want around 40% of that root system to be colonized if you wanna get all the benefits of the mycorrhizal fungus. You will start getting benefit if you've only have 12% colonization. So see, you wanna make certain that you're getting up to that level of at least 40%. Well, is this root system colonized at least 40%? Look at where it's not colonized. So you measure those links where that root doesn't have any colonization and then measure the links where you do have colonization. This is not difficult to do. You just have to know that you've got to have a UV lamp there that you're illuminating or you get an epifluorescent um, insert for your microscope so you don't have to try to stand there uh, and hold the flashlight. So... How do you know if you're getting enough nutrients? You've got to be using your microscope. There is no way to know that you've got a healthy soil and therefore healthy plants unless you have a means of measuring all of these things. And that's what we're showing you is the view that you get through your microscope. Now, sometimes you can see strands of fungal hyphae with the naked eye, but these are a hundred or more strands of fungal hypha all going together in a rhizomorph. And so when you pick up one of these um, wood chips, when you pick it up, all the rest of all of this material comes with. It's just like a wind chimes. It is so much fun to hang those in front of your house and pretend that you can be hearing all of the music of the fairies from the wind chimes held by these kinds of fungi. The, the white color is typically due to calcium oxalate that is held um, on the surfaces. So it's a way for the fungus to be able to um, increase its exchange capacity and um, have close by the some of the mineral nutrients that it really needs. So let's go on to some of the predators now. So we've done bacteria and fungi. Here we have a flagellate. So a little round guy. You can see one flagellum a little bit shorter on this side than on that side. And so that's what causes flagellates to bumble when they move through the soil. Because one of these um, flagella are going to wrap around the body. And so as this uh, little guy flutters his flagellum and moves forward this away, that drag from this flagellum wrapping around its body 
always causes that sidewards motion. As this is uh, moving along, there's sidewards motion, moving along slide, sidewards motion, moving along sidewards motion. So we use that motion to tell us this is a flagellate. This is not a ciliate. Um, the size, you know, this is about the smallest flagellate you're ever going to see. Um, and so the size, a little bit larger, definitely flagellates. Sometimes we have flagellates that are quite a bit bigger, and then you have a little bit of um, difficulty telling the ciliate from the flagellate. So you practice, 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 and you'll get that idea. And so come spend some time on a microscope with us at the Soil Food Web School and um, learn how to monitor all your organisms. Become a lab tech, and we teach you how to set up your business. Um, we'll help you understand how to set up your business. And, uh, of course, you've got to go get your own accountant. You need to find a business lawyer, all those things. But then attracting clients, getting that reputation. Look at how there's very little aggregation in this soil. Well, is it soil or is this dirt? Because when you get this concentrated back up to 100 times more concentrated, um, you're going to have a very badly compacted soil. You notice that there are no, uh, back, there are no uh, fungi. Um, we're only seeing one flagellate. You know, no good guy nematodes. So got to keep your eyes open and start making those conclusions about is this good, bad, or indifferent. So nematodes. Um, in this case, this guy has a pretty big mouth, but no teeth inside here. V-stoma, it's got little hairs, it's called CT, and if you've got little hairs like this, this is not going to be a predatory nematode. This is a bacterial feeder. So mouth and the lips lets you know that this is a bacterial feeder, it lives, in the, it lives in the town of vegetable roots, and it eats aerobic bacteria, releasing the nutrients that your plant requires right around the root zone. So if bad tasting anaerobic bacteria start to grow or things get too disturbed, this guy's gonna move off and this uh, nematodes can move a couple yards in a couple days. So they're gonna be moving away looking for better things. So these beneficial nematodes tell us a lot about what the quality of the soil is. Here's a fungal feeding nematode. There's a spear right there. And it uses that spear to push its way into the fungal hypha. And then it's suckered up and sucks out um, all of the cytoplasm inside that fungal hypha. And then this fungal feeding nematode is going to go off and find another fungus and another fungus. and Yep, how to keep the fungi in control. This is a predatory nematode. And see that big tooth and see how much bigger this nematode is than anything else we've looked at? This was a root-feeding nematode. And so this nematode, the predatory nematode, eats other nematodes. So not a parasitic nematode, which eats other living organisms. Uh, this guy, predator... Um, it's going to use that tooth to chow down 
on that other nematode and slowly but surely engulfs engulf, engulf this root feeding nematode. So I always cheer when I see these predatory nematodes with the great big teeth in their mouths. Root feeding nematode, yikes, bad news. Now this guy too has a spear in its mouth. So see how shiny and bright it is? And it's gonna take its muscles and push that spear into a root and try to break through into the sap inside of that root system. Well, in order to do that, it's got to have a great big knob on the end to attach its muscles to in order to draw back that spear and bam, try to break its way through the root of that plant. And so root feeding nematodes, that's how they're getting their food, sucking out the uh, root system of your plant, causing a lot of damage, billions and billions of dollars worth of damage. Um, on an annual basis from root feeding nematodes. So you can see why you wanna be able to identify these. Now we don't identify two genus and species typically. If you work on any one group of the organisms for very long, you will get that good. But it's not necessary because their function is pointed out by a lot less um, fine-tuned uh, morphology. We can put it in the right category. And so we know that we need to get rid of it. Well, how are you going to get rid of it? You're going to put in things that eat it or compete with it or inhibit it or consume it. So that that solves our problems instead of having to kill everything. Because there is no way to kill just one species of organisms. All of the toxic chemicals can kill a vast number of species in the soil. And so you're really causing harm. It's a catastrophe when we start using those things. So just a quick run back over the fact that it's the organisms that do all the work in soil. And if you kill off those organisms, you're gonna have to do those organisms work. And we are incredibly bad at doing that. Now I promised that I would talk about succession and yep, we've got the time to do that. So looking at succession, a catastrophic disturbance has happened and driven something all the way back to just like before life started on this planet. The first thing that comes in here is gonna have to be a photosynthetic bacterium typically algae, something like that. So the cyanobacteria, uh, cryptobiotic crusts, for example, will establish at this time. So just getting a covering on the surface of, of the rocks, not, no higher plants growing in here typically, but you do have to have this start. It is the biology that comes in and starts making a difference. And now you start to have organic matter accumulate in the soil. Now you'll have enough bacteria to start growing a few weeds. Okay, so now we've got some weeds. We've got some cellulose in the system. And so now we can have a few of those plants that require some fungi. Still typically, 
pretty early succession in here. We may still have a fair number of weeds in these early successional systems because they need just nitrate in order to grow. And bacteria are really great at converting any NH4 that's released by the predators of the bacterium fungi. That, that NH4 is going to be very rapidly converted into nitrate. And now you can say, hello, weeds. So would you like to stop growing weeds? Can you do that? Absolutely. But you've got to start balancing the fungi and the bacteria correctly. So mid-successional species like, uh, you know, the uh, Bermuda grass, the um, early successional grass species, uh, things like kale and cold crops, mustards, brassicas, things like that are selected for in these kinds of conditions where we have half of the fungal biomass as compared to the bacterial biomass, setting the stage to grow these particular early successional grassland kind of species. But most of us want better than that. So Mother Nature wanted it too. So as more of the um, woody materials, more kinds of cellulose, maybe some lignans in here as well, fungal foods, so that the fungi can start increasing more rapidly and become more a component of the ecosystem. So now we're up at um, 500 micrograms of bacteria to 250 micrograms of fungi. Let's keep going. We're going to increase the quality of the plant material. We're going to get to the highly productive grasses. We're going to have um, some low-growing shrubs perhaps in here as well. So successional processes are moving us along to where we're right on the cusp of going into fungal-dominated systems. So anything, um, anything to the left of this area, bacterial-dominated and getting more and more bacterial the further we go this way. Let's go back the other way, more and more fungal, until now we're over the edge and we are equal biomass and now actually fungal dominated. Deciduous trees are what grow up. Well, where do the vines and the bushes and the shrubs come in? Well, right on this edge of the successional process. Then into deciduous trees. And of course, now we've got wood and we're going to get lots more wood down here, lots more fungal food very wide diameter carbon nitrogen ratio and the bacteria can't use that. So now here we are in the old growth and that fungal biomass in the old growth forest, 7,000 micrograms of fungal biomass to 700 micrograms. And um, kind of low on the low side. So for example, if you go to the redwood forest, you go to the sequoia, you're going to be seeing 70,000 micrograms of fungal biomass as compared to 700 micrograms of bacteria. So kind of notice as you go through here, the bacteria increase, 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 and then they just level off. The fungi are what really make the difference. No fungi, not very much. Well, okay, now we're starting to come along. 
And now we're getting, whoa, my gosh. It is the biology that causes succession. Okay, so keep going. Talking a little bit here about, you know, the nitrates um, require bacterial dominated as we start to get fungal. Um, the pH on your soil is going to drop and it's going to go into the slightly uh, acidic condition because fungi produce organic acids. Bacteria make alkaline glues. So bacterial dominated, typically going to be bacterial, um, um, going to be the uh, slightly alkaline um, conditions in that soil. Start getting more fungal. Now we drop down into slightly acid conditions. And now a lot of that nitrate is not going to get converted to, uh, not going to get, a lot of that ammonium, sorry, a lot of the ammonium stays as ammonium and does not get converted into nitrate. Keep going more and more and more and more fungal. Almost the only thing you find in these late successional forest systems is going to be ammonium. There's almost no nitrate. So biology controls all of this. It's not the other way around. Now, as you go through this whole successional process, Mother Nature is pushing things along by ever increasing that fungal biomass. So why isn't everything an old growth forest? <laughs> Obvious. It's because we have disturbance. Think of all the things that might disturb the soil and cause bacteria to be selected for and fungi to be selected against. And so you can go all the way back with a fire that's intense enough, with a flood that lasts too long and, and the water goes anaerobic, a plague of insects, come, a volcano erupts pushing everything backwards and then mother nature starts to rebuild and then there's you know slight flooding and then mother nature starts to rebuild and then along comes a bunch of insects and mother nature starts to build and then back it goes and forwards and back and look at yin yang if you will huh all the way to old growth highly stable 2000 years before a lot of those trees start to decompose and the system is going to go backwards in succession. Well, how far back? It depends on the intensity of the disturbance and how often that disturbance occurs. If something occurs quite frequently, the organisms in that ecosystem, the plants, the animals, and the microorganisms in the soil will get used to that frequency of disturbance and start to take it on as a natural, normal course of things. So pretty soon, we have an old growth system that's occurring even in a place where we have some routine disturbance happening in that ecosystem. Okay, so just a couple of examples. I wanted to show you what happens. This is work we did in the Ukraine where we were looking at barley, but we also did some wheat, we did some oats, other kinds of grasses. And so when we started out, everybody was growing their plants using no technology. They were putting out inorganic fertilizers, 
where they could afford pesticides. Otherwise, they were brewing up some concoctions to try and kill the bad guys in the soil so they didn't lose their crop to the feeding nematodes, to the fungal diseases. So when we look at that control where we're not adding back any biology into the system, at the end of the growing season, the roots had only gone three centimeters. You know, that's like a, an inch and a half into the soil. There was a lot of compaction. So the compaction preventing roots from being able to grow deeper. Well, gosh, so now can you explain why the root systems didn't grow any deeper than three centimeters? Because it couldn't push its way through that compacted layer just a, uh, you know, a centimeter and a half away. So the roots could not grow very deeply. They couldn't get the um, nutrients they wanted. So the height of the plant was only one meter. The number of seeds in the seed had 30, uh, only 1.6 tillers per plant and surrounded by weeds, just horrific weed fields. I have not seen more impressive weeds than I saw there. And yet when we started putting in the biology with this stage one technology applied, we put on a compost tea after we put compost on. So the first thing, compost plus a compost tea, and the plant grew much better. Well, there was 32 seeds per seed head and it grew an extra um, six centimeters. Keep going, adding two applications of a compost tea plus the compost. Look at how much more there, instead of just three tillers, now it's got six to eight tillers. And each one of those six to eight tillers have 34 seeds in the seed head on average. How about when we put on four applications? We have um, 10 centimeters uh, roots growing into that soil. You can see where we cut them off right there. 10 centimeters worth of roots growing down into the soil. So more nutrients, more water, higher yields. Um, compaction was all the way down at 24 centimeters. So those roots could grow down that deep. The height of the plant was one and a quarter meter tall. 36 seeds per seed head. They had 2.8 tillers per plant and, um, and very few weeds in the plot. So can we influence the way the plant grows? Absolutely. Can we increase yields? Absolutely. Can we reduce your costs? Because remember, we weren't putting on any of the toxic chemicals. We weren't out there every two weeks applying an herbicide to try to knock the weeds back down so that the plant could grow. We weren't putting on inorganic fertilizers. We, weren't, we had no need for the pesticides. So we saved a lot of money as well as increasing yields. Going on, looking at grapes in this, ta in this instance, table grapes. When we first started working with these people in the grape exchange in Australia, they gave us their one non-productive farm that had never, ever had a crop that could be picked. So in 2006, one of the worst drought years of the, of the last 35 years of drought they'd had, they got normal yields. So 
a huge improvement. It convinced them that they could get rid of all these other problems. So the next year, all 34 of their farms converted the biological approach. They weathered severe, severe drought. There was no rain at all from the beginning of the growing season. So from uh, September onwards, remember they're in the Southern Hemisphere, so springtime is in September. So from September all the way through to the next July, they had no rain at all. But we produced 75% of the normal yield. And for the, that particular year, conventional farms only got 30 to 50% of their normal yield. And most of the farms didn't even pick because there wasn't enough to pay for the pickers, for the, for the people coming out and doing the harvest. We reduced their um, operating expenditure by 16%, even though that was the year that they had to buy the turners, they had to buy their tea brewers, they still reduced their costs by 16%. Improved marketable yields, reduced water use by 50 to 70%. That means we didn't need to have water in the dam in order to grow our plants. All we needed was dewfall. So can biology fix all these things for you? Beyond a shadow of a doubt. In this experiment, this was uh, work that was done again in the Ukraine, um, in Latvia. And the comparison I want you to pay attention to is this one, where we compare the conventional system to the good biology, the biologically com complete biology compost. The middle, this um, um, pink um, column here, was where we took something that had a label in it from the municipal composting company for, next to the uh, landfill. And that ha -ha, compost smelled to high heaven. Oh, it was horrible. The smell was just beyond belief. And look at the differences in yields. Where we put on something that really had the good biology, 73% increase in yield, 12, 87, 63, 149% increase in yield. I, a great deal of the time, don't like to be showing people these kinds of numbers because they just don't believe this is possible. That as compared to the conventional system, we get this much increase. Well, not if you use toxic decomposing organic matter. It's got to be properly made compost. And we teach you how to do that. Um, we give you the recipes. We work with you to make you understand how you keep the conditions so that you grow the beneficials, you kill the disease-causing organisms, and then the good guys take over and stay in that system. So crops that look like this is what we want to get. So this is work by Renald Flores. And um, he works a great deal in um, Portugal, as well as in the Ukraine and some of the East Bloc countries. So get a hold of him if, you, if that's the part of the world that you're from. Just looking at some of his yields, this is with the good compost. Look at how much taller that plant is than any of the, well, this is the control. Um, so the chemical 
um, no input, meaning no biological input. Uh, this is that, that horrible commercial compost. Yeah, that really can get, cause damage. So you see where some people think that compost is extremely dangerous. You can't grow plants because look at the difference. These are all sick, unhappy, unhealthy plants. Well, let's keep going. Here's another indicator. This is fennel. Um, so same kind of take-home message. Um, deeper roots, um, taller plants, much more um, sellable plant material. Here this is with uh, all of this row in this organic garden had been put in. All of this row looked like these plants down here until they came in with the compost tea. One-time application, so a week ago, they sprayed this into the row with a compost tea, and you can see the difference that it's made. Now he's out there, he's gonna put a second application of compost tea on just to keep things, make certain that all the above ground is covered because they're starting to see insect pests and diseases causing problems in other parts of the garden. We had no insects, no diseases in here. So, Looking at, this is coming from Australia, we're down in, um, yeah, so we're in the southern tip of Australia, and I can't remember, Tasmania. And uh, what we're looking at over here is where we have applied compost and compost tea um, to the soil. So the compost tilled into the soil, then planted the onion. So this is the only time ever I will suggest that you till and then put the biology and put the biology in at the same time. So the compost did get tilled in because we wanted to break up that compaction layer. How can I tell there was a compaction layer here? Look at the clods. Look at all those lumps. And that's breaking up of that compaction layer when you're doing the tillage. Then as soon as those seedlings pop up, like you can see those little tiny seedlings all popping up in here. That's why things look green as you look across that um, field. And um, you see basically no weeds at all. Let's look over at this row where the conventional system was applied and we look at all the weeds that are growing up. Applications of the herbicides just don't do as much as they used to. We have a lot of weeds that are resistant to the herbicides being used. So this showed, this proved the weed pressure that the rest of that field used to have. And by getting the proper biology out here, we converted that nitrate, prevented the NO3 from being, the NH4 from being converted into NO3, so that NH4 is the predominant form of nitrogen in this field. And of course, the yields on the, of the onions on this side were just so much better, so much higher. So just the last two slides. Yeah, it's just, yeah, perfect timing. The two, the two slides talking about what we offer at the Soil Food Web School. We, in the foundation courses, these are the courses that teach you the theory. What I've gone through in an hour and a half here 
we now expand that out. We get into more of the gory details, more explanations of why this all works so you understand exactly how this all works and why you do this or why you do the other thing, depending on what crop and what you're trying to grow and the problems that were in that field to begin with. You've got to overcome them and then you've got to build back even more. So we teach you the theory. In the uh, first class, which has about, if I remember correctly, 27, 45-minute um, classes in it because we're going to give you all of the theory for all of these organisms. The second class is about nine um, um, lectures long because we're going to teach you about compost, solid, um, uh, thermal compost as well as worm compost as well as static compost, although we always say uh, please learn how to do thermal compost before you do static composting because you really do not need to have a fire engulfing uh, your whole entire backyard and maybe taking out your house at the same time. Not a really good course of action. You want to learn about the thermal processes, how composting can get really hot. So we want you to learn th um, thermal composting um, worm composting, if that fits your lifestyle better. So we want you to understand both. So because later in your life, your um, desire to make worm compost may become much, much greater because you don't want to put back-breaking labor into things. Your choice. Either that or you buy a turner. Um, the third class then is taking that biocomplete compost which you need the really beneficial organisms to be in that biocomplete compost. And now you're going to extract those organisms out, or you're going to extract and grow. So a tea has an added component to it. You're going to add foods to grow the specific organisms you want to enhance. Gosh, my... Compost just doesn't have enough fungi in it. How am I going to manage to get fungi? So you're going to um, take your compost, pull out as much fungi as you possibly can, turn it into a tea. So you're going to put foods into that extract and grow the tea so that you can inoculate your compost and get more fungi growing in there. Now you're going to have compost that will serve to put out on your beds and till that material in this year and start the process of building the structure that is in your that needs to be in your soil converting that dirt back into soil and then of course how do you know that it's actually soil you've got to learn how to use the microscope so we go through we introduce you to more lots more pictures of those organisms we teach you how to extract the protozoa and the nematodes. And you know, I just told you about one of the tricks that we use um, in order to get more fungi back into the system. So now, once you've finished the foundation courses, you might just want to you know, go back home and practice what you've learned. But you may want to keep on, especially if you're interested in making some money. This is where we certify you as a lab tech. We teach you all of the ways of getting beautiful pictures, um, long distance work with um, your clients, 
where you're showing them what is in their soil and they're telling them that they've got to get those organisms doubled or tripled in value in order to be able to get their soil to grow the plant they want to grow. And once they have that biology in the soil up to where you need it to be to grow good, healthy, fill in the blank, whatever plant it is you want to grow, then you don't have to rotate anymore. You're not going to have problems with weeds. So a lot of the reasons for constantly tilling in organic systems just goes away. You may want to be putting in protection of your soil surface. So we're going to want you to put down mulch. But, you know, mulch decomposes. It's eaten by the bacteria and the fungi. And that means you may be putting on mulch two or three times a summer. And I don't know about you, but that's a lot of work, especially when you start getting up to, you know, 50, 100, 150 hectare properties. You that's hard to get that much to get that much mulch to begin with and then be spreading it so instead put in really low growing um, plants that cover the surface so ground covers or um, cover plants not cover crops cover crops are idiotic <laughs> and if you take the classes i'll explain why um, you want low growing deep rooted perennial plants preferably so that you will constantly be feeding your soil constantly be feeding the microorganisms even in the dead of winter you're going to get a thaw now and again and you want to have those plants wake up and put out a few exudates go back to sleep when it freezes back over but come springtime then your cover plants wake up long before you're going to be putting in your crop plant. This is going to help you to be able to drive out on your farmland no matter what time of year it is. You don't get that sloggy, swampish, gloppy mess because you're not maintaining biology, you're not maintaining structure in your soil. These plants help maintain structure all the time and every bit of the snow every bit of the ice as it melts infiltrates into the soil so be get your eyes out there make sure you're looking for where is the puddling crane where is the problem yep mother nature's telling you and if you don't pay attention she's going to beat you up worse and worse and worse every year until you pay attention so pay attention Make certain that you build the structure, you keep the structure through that winter time period so that you very easily can go in and plant. You don't have to worry about compaction layers if you're maintaining that biology in the soil. And then, gee, you don't have to be putting on the compost in years to come. You might only have to apply one or two um, applications of compost extracts or compost teas. Because the plants themselves maintain that biology that you require, so you don't have to work so hard. So certified lab tech, learn to use that microscope, and then you can be doing samples for all of your neighbors. 
they can be bringing you stuff and you can look at it you can show them um, you know here's what should be there I don't see any this that or the other thing so I think you need to be getting those organisms back into the soil and then of course if you really want somebody who's expert in determining what all of this biology means you want to hire a consultant that's gone through the process of hands-on making their own compost under the jurisdiction of those of us at the school. Um, they've learned to make extract, make teas, they've learned all the tricks, um, and then has gone through the process of converting dirt back into soil. They've run into a goodly number of the oopses, the, well, I didn't think that through. Um, they've had the experience, and so hiring one of them to help you um, understand what that lab um, report means. We incorporate the chemicals, the biologicals, we incorporate permaculture, we incorporate whatever version of trying to get your plants to grow. Whatever's necessary, we'll use that tool which performs the process of fixing the problems. So when you get finished with um, the composting, with if you go through the whole composting process, you can go back home and you can start to make biocomplete compost. You have to certify it every year with us to keep the, our, our stamp of approval. But what we find is that there's, um, when you move into a new area, people go, oh yeah, compost, I tried that, doesn't work. Well, they start to look at your lawn, your agricultural areas, and they want to know what do you do to get crops looking like that. And so you sell them um, some of your compost, and they're, you know, usually they're not going to pay you for that much for it right at the beginning, but, you know, double the price of everybody else and then they go try that compost on their land and they're back for more within a couple weeks usually okay now they understand why that's worth it and now you're you know you get um, um, too many people coming and wanting your products so how are, how do you deal with too much demand you raise your prices and so you, now you're starting to make higher levels some of the starting material, some of the people that we've already been working with, for example, down in California, they started out being able to sell their compost, you know, totally biocomplete compost, um, for you know, seventy-five, eighty-five dollars per cubic yard. Pretty soon, halfway through the season, they were selling their product for hundred and fifty dollars per cubic yard. By the next growing season, they were selling it for 250 Today, they're selling their compost because the reputation of this stuff, of this material that's got all this good biology in it, they are asking and getting $750 per cubic yard. So can you make a living this way? Well, you know, you've got to make sure that you're keeping costs down. You, you want to make a good living at this. But think of the possibilities there to be the first person in the neighborhood to start this process and you become the guru. 
certified soil food web consultants. So you work directly with growers. We pass growers on to you in your vicinity. We help you figure out how to go out to grower groups, how to get the advertising, how to get your name known. And so pretty rapidly, we're going to make certain that you have, uh, or we're going to, to the best of our ability, that you're going to have clients so that you can be uh, financially um, well off. It's going to take a while. I'm going to promise that it's going to take you work. You can't be um, lazy about this, but, you know, get... Um, get your business up and going and we try to help as much as possible certified soil food web tech so we talked about that where you do the samples most of the time we find that consultants get too many clients pretty rapidly and so now they're going to need one or two soil techs soil food web lab techs um, to come in and help them do the processing of the samples that they're taking so We've talked a lot about um, cleaning, uh, you know, uh, what it is that the organisms do. And so building structures so the nutrients are held in the aggregates. They're held in the organisms. Water infiltrates quickly, but then is held in the porous structure. Lots of pores. We do not have leaching. We don't have erosioning because all the microorganisms down in that soil are grabbing all the nutrients and none of that escapes. So what comes out the bottom is clean water. And it helps everything downstream from you. If you've got rain coming into a system that has no structure, you will typically have runoff occurring. You will have leaching uh, happening. Nutrients move with the water. Water runs off. It water logs. It puddles, you're going to go anaerobic. There's your compaction layer starting to build right as you can watch it. Leaching, erosion, runoff are problems. Any water coming through the system, most of it goes along on top of the compaction layer, runs right off down the hill. What water does come through is high in salts, high in toxic materials. It compacts very easily, easily, very rapidly, and it ends up anaerobic. Good luck growing a crop in that. So the Soil Food Web, I hope you will come and join us for some of our classes. Um, come and learn about all of this, the direction that we have to go on this planet so that we sequester carbon. Come talk with us about sequestering carbon, all of those good things. And then here's a little bit of information about us, how to get hold of us, um, and who to directly call or um, um, send an email to uh, investigate the prices of the foundation courses. We have a promotion that's going to be coming up in, in January, and that's probably the best time to get the best price um, for the foundation classes. Um, we won't be offering the um the the reduction in prices forever so within this might be the last um the the last promotional sequence where we drop the price uh well maybe maybe two more 
But beyond that, we probably will not be offering reduced prices for the foundation or the um, certified lab tech or the certified training program either. So we have a lot of people with um, um, a lot of jobs out there. We're hoping that we will have enough um, empty places for all three groups of people to go out and have a job as soon as they finish their courses. So working with enough people that maybe that's going to be possible for us to ship you off to various places around the world so you can have an adventure while you're also applying all this great new information. So thank you very much. And I think we have a question and answer session next. All right. Isn't Elaine amazing? I love Dr. Elaine Ingham. And in my work, it's been so thrilling to go further and find the principles of the soil food web that she set down, that she and her husband and other experts together, working together collaboratively like the soil food web members themselves to generate this incredible picture and principles around what works in soil. In many ways, it's the backbone for everything I've been doing, everything that's led me to my work on regenerative soil, the microscope, even the DNA testing, even all of that has, it's, it's all started with Elaine. So I love Elaine. And if you love Elaine too, click the link below for our future 2022, r-future.world is the address. Just type that in top and it'll just take you there. There's going to be download options, goodie bag options, so many incredible things, but you can just start by signing up for free because everyone's welcome to do any of that at any time they want. Join us. It's going to be so much fun, but hop in now. Start the conversation. There's a social network attached to this. It's kind of already open, um, and so you can start networking now and getting ready for the event. So check it out. I'm so excited about it. I've, I've never had an event before with a social network attached to it. So it's like a real conference where you have like a name tag and you get to network and meet people outside the conference rooms. So there's gonna be the speakers and the speaker videos on the course platform, which is a login based one, but you're gonna also have a social network and you're gonna be able to put yourself on there, put videos of yourself, put pictures, put your ideas out there, discuss those ideas, meet other people just like you. Read other people's thoughts and ideas and see what they're doing. Get inspired by everyone, not just the speakers. This is, I really want to create a new, more collaborative conference because I was the guy out in the hallway networking with people, talking with people, having stimulating conversations. And there were speakers, you know, in the conference room sometimes. And it's, and you know what I'm talking about. This is, this is a part of that culture, a part of the event that is so vital and, and energetic. And so I really, and it's, it goes beyond, you know, permaculture conferences or soil conferences. You know, this happens at, you know, famous concerts where, you know, outside Jimi Hendrix is playing, you know, and, and drawing people away. And, and, and this is, this is what happens. You know, there, this is part of the energy of connection and, and grassroots. And I want to foment that. I want to encourage that. So that's why I set it up. It's free. Everyone can join. You can join right now and hop in the social network right now. You can join right now and introduce yourself. And, and there's no, 
video is up yet because the conference starts and it's a live conference. So every day, new videos will pop up. We'll have giveaways. We'll have live Q and A's and discussions. And, and it's really about fomenting inspiration and hope so that we all can expand upon our own stories and interconnect and interweave them into a larger culture of hope and inspiration and unification and connection. Because I believe that's like the best of who we are as people is to live regeneratively, to, to share and connect with others, to support each other, to, to have local economies that are regenerative, to have visions of the future that include everyone, that empower everyone, and show a way forward out of all this craziness that we're in right now. And they are possible. There are people doing it. It's already started. There are examples of working with nature, working with people, all of it combined in a new hopeful and regenerative pathway forward. So join us in our future 2022. Starts in January next month. And Elaine, Dr. Elaine Ingham will be there with us, my friend and mentor. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of my channel. Please subscribe, like, and share, and sign up for our future. I'll see you there. I'm Matt Powers. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively.